This podcast aims to shed light on Arizona's legislative process through personal narratives. Each episode will highlight a certain step of the bill process, and we will hear from specialists, academics, and legislative members to give us a deeper understanding of the inner workings of government and how you can have your voice heard. Let's go. Arizona Common Ground is about public health advocates exploring issues from a public health perspective. While recording and listening to this podcast, I hope to create an environment where we can challenge ourselves to listen intently, think openly, debate intelligently, and care endlessly. So thank you for listening in. Support for AZ Common Ground comes from the Western Region Public Health Training Center at the University of Arizona. In this episode, we will introduce telemedicine as a case study. As a reminder, we are following Senate Bill 1089, a telemedicine bill. Both of our speakers today have experience in telehealth and telemedicine. Dr. Laura Coco shares examples of how evidence-based research and identified need can be translated into action. Meanwhile, Dr. Carter quickly walks us through the eight-year efforts of stakeholder engagement and shares the efforts that contributed to the bill being introduced in January. She also gives a statewide view on where telemedicine efforts stand and what else needs to be done to improve the health of all Arizonans. So, is telehealth the future of medicine? Let's explore it. My name is Will Humble. I'm Deb Gullett. I'm Cherie Stone. Hi, I'm Greg Ensel, Vice President of Government Relations at the Arizona Hospital and Healthcare Association. This is Billy Fisher with Peacock Legal. Thanks for listening. If you're listening to this podcast, you made a good choice because public health is a great career. Welcome to Common Ground. I am your host, Krista. Thank you for listening in. We are recording from the patio in front of the Mel and Enid Zuckerman College of Public Health here at the University of Arizona. It's a beautiful day. We are covered in tree canopy, and I am here with Laura Coco. Laura, thank you for making time. Can you introduce yourself for us? Thank you so much for having me. It's it's a beautiful day. Um, My name is Laura Coco. I'm a PhD student in the Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing, and I'm working on my dissertation, which is related to teleaudiology, telemedicine. I first started out as an audiologist and then came over to start my PhD here. So Thanks for making time. Um, so what got you involved in telehealth and telemedicine in the first place? Um, I started learning about telemedicine when I was in school for audiology, and I was interested in audiology because I have deaf members of my family and that's how I know that audiology exists and so when I started working in audiology um, I noticed that there are health disparities and health care disparities for people having access to hearing services so I was volunteering at a place in Mexico in Oaxaca and it was a nonprofit clinic for people to come and get their hearing tested and to get hearing aids. And people would come to that clinic from like eight hours away. And there are just so few resources because there are not many audiologists. And then coming back to Texas, where I'm from, I noticed that the same there are the same issues there in Texas. Um, too few audiologists, the services are inaccessible for a number of reasons. And that's true all over the US. And, all over the world. The fact is, in the United States and in the world, Mm -hmm. there's far more people with hearing loss and far fewer audiologists that could help them. Um, So teleaudiology is one way to bridge that gap to make 
services more efficient and more accessible. Awesome. Wow, what a great story. I did not know that. In the U.S., we are not um, moving as forward as fast as we could gotcha. with teleaudiology. So I wanted to do explore more. Um, and to do that, I you know I had to get my PhD. We just did a project um, in my lab where we made a map of Arizona and mapped out, we collaborated with a student in geography, and we mapped out where are the audiology practice locations in Arizona. So where can you go for hearing aid yeah. services? And where are the people? Audiology services are concentrated to Phoenix, Tucson, and some in Flagstaff. Mm -hmm. But there's people all over the state, yeah. right? Uh, oh, yeah, so you'd yeah. have to travel sometimes over an hour to get to the nearest services. So if teleaudiology could minimize that travel distance, then it would save time for the patient. It could save money. And so we're trying to explore kind of the best service delivery model to be efficient and affordable, but also work within the community context. So um, awesome. understanding that teleaudiology or telehealth doesn't work, yeah. may not work for everyone. Yeah. It's kind of the area of focus Thank right you. now. And bringing that back to Arizona, since you were doing that mapping, can you maybe talk to us a bit of the history about telehealth and telemedicine? to your knowledge? Yes, it's actually really amazing to be in Arizona studying telemedicine at the University of Arizona because a lot of it started here. Um, we have the Arizona Telemedicine Program, which is funded by the Arizona State Legislature. It has bipartisan support, and it's uh, located right here in the University of Arizona campus. It's like right down the road from where we are right now. And it's such a wealth of support and knowledge. They have people there who have so many years of experience working in a lot of different health fields. And so me, for example, I went in and said, I'm, I have this idea for the project. I need help with what technology should I use? What approach should I take? And they, they're a real um, support there. And they um, have training programs that they offer all year, several times a year. They have webinars where, for example, a physician who has experience in telemedicine will come and talk about what they're doing, and then they have full-day workshops, which are free to people who live in Arizona and any of the states that are affiliated with their Southwest Resource Center. But as far as the history of telemedicine, the history that started in Arizona was one of the first instances of like a large-scale telemedicine program was with the Tohono O'odham tribe and actually NASA collaborated what? and cool. um, just showed like the feasibility of how that could work. But the, one of the first instances of going back to like the late 1800s, someone mentioned that, um, or someone documented that a doctor, a physician diagnosed a child over the telephone. So technically that's telemedicine. Mm -hmm. um, so if you kind of open your mind to the definition of what telemedicine is, it's just providing remote clinical services. And that could be, it's typically over video conferencing, mm -hmm. but in that case, in the late 1800s, yeah. we didn't have all this high technology. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of one of the first instances. So between then and now, how it's kind of evolved is it became very popular in certain fields. So radiology, for example, it um, really took off in that field because um, when you think about how straightforward that might be sending slides or images from a technician who's trained to capture those images mm -hmm. and then can email it over a secure server to a 
physician yeah. who's, mm-hmm. who's trained to analyze that. And that's telemedicine. And that was a high need area because oftentimes there would be someone, like a kid who broke his leg in the middle of the night and would need imaging or something more severe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would need imaging at um, an off hour, um, times that were where a specialist wasn't available. And so in those cases, telemedicine could be used. And now the majority of radiology, for example, it uses telemedicine. But there are other fields that are slower to translate um, or to adopt telemedicine or have certain barriers to them. So in my field in audiology, Mm -hmm. it's not as simple. We would need a few other steps. It's not as simple as taking an image and then sending sending it it, and then getting a diagnosis and sending it back. Yeah, Yeah. I can imagine. That's part of it. (laughs) I could take a a picture of your eardrum with Uh a video otoscope. And that's certainly a part of audiology. Mm -hmm. And then a technician could be trained to do that and could send it off to the audiologist. But that's just a part of audiology. We do a lot more than that. Um, I'll get deeper into that. I'm definitely going to ask because I have some questions. Uh, Can you tell us why is telemedicine important? Telemedicine is completely changing how people access healthcare. It's making it more convenient and more accessible. And in my field, I'm um, focused on rural and underserved populations, so it could it could totally open up how they're able to access care. It could shorten um, the time to diagnosis. It could even shorten, you know, in my field, we're not dealing with life and death, but in certain situations, it could make it so that the patient receives care quicker, and then that that enhances their their quality of life and their their yeah their lifespan even to add in that's that's god that's amazing because i i learned that in mayo clinic so located in phoenix they have one of the largest telestroke telemedicine type of availability and they speak to people that are having strokes that have this capability to communicate all over the u.s and I was so shocked when the doctor came in and he was giving a presentation, an educational presentation, showing how the machine works, how the robots move, and the quality of the resolution of the picture you're looking at. It's amazing. And I remember he was saying, when someone's having a stroke, minutes are important. Like, that is so important to if they will be able to use the left side of their body, if they will be able to move again, and how bad that stroke could be. And so when I was thinking about not only our aging population, but be able to bridge that for rural communities and the underserved it's opening a whole platform that never existed exactly that's right that's amazing yep it saves lives and then on the other end or it's it's the same the same field but it's also making services health services more convenient to people who already had access so if we think about in my field telemedicine is starting to bring um make make it able you able to adjust your hearing aid using your cell phone so it's starting to just increase the amount of control that the patient has over their own health and that is all part of telehealth and telemedicine that's empowering for the patients then can you tell us about what you're working on now and maybe i'm not saying what your research shows but maybe what you have so far well we're not to that point yet okay okay still in the preparation phase okay talk to us no risk of revealing any results before they're unpublished all right (laughs) (laughs) what i'm hoping to show no um so i'm my dissertation is related to so it's actually going back to why i was drawn to the university of arizona is my mentor nicole maroney in speech language and hearing she's worked for a number of years in collaboration with Mariposa Community Health Center in Nogales. 
and her project called Oyendo Bien is a real blend of audiology and public health. It's an, a project where promotoras are facilitating oral rehabilitation communication classes for older adults with hearing loss who live in an area that's um, underserved for audiology, so they, they live pretty far from audiology services. And so the Brahmatoras give these classes, they're trained to give these classes on how we lost our hearing and how we can communicate better. Really yep, quick, I, for our listeners, that um, Promotoras are, it's another word for saying community health workers, so that they're training these community health workers to then deliver these services. Thank you. Yeah. And the, the, the point of that is the community health workers are from that community, they have a deep knowledge of the community needs, and they speak the language, um, and they are more effective communicators, both because they know the language and they can relate to the participants, patients yeah. um, better. And so um, that's been shown in, in a number of studies. And That is so cool. So my project is looking at telemedicine as a way to connect patients in a rural area with an audiologist and fit them with hearing aids. So um, wow. that's what we're going to do. It's a feasibility study and the audiologists will be here at the University of Arizona, patients in Nogales, and then we're doing a remote hearing tests and hearing fittings and kind of showing, um, exploring different parts of that model and seeing which um, components are the most um, effective in terms of benefit um, hearing benefit and um, patient satisfaction things like that community benefit exactly wow that's so interesting I have a question so this is a uh, if let's say because you mentioned that uh, you have family members that are deaf my dad was born with hearing loss and he wasn't diagnosed with, he didn't get his first hearing test until he was 16 that doesn't happen anymore thankfully as much hopefully mm -hmm. because we have newborn hearing screenings which is a national campaign and it's implemented very well but he was born in the 50s in Mississippi and that didn't happen so um, but they found out later that he did have hearing loss now he has a cochlear implant so that um, goes to your question if someone's born deaf they if a baby's born deaf now they um, have the parents have the option to Surgery, no? surgery to get a cochlear implant. So a cochlear implant, um, for listeners who are not aware, is different than a hearing aid. Um, it's for people who have more severe to profound hearing loss, and it involves surgery and an electrode implanted to your cochlea, and then you hear a bit differently. You hear kind of, um, not through your ears, through an acoustic signal, but electronic. And that's an option for kids as young as one year old. They could get a cochlear implant. And this, while the surgery is not done by telemedicine, we call it mapping. It's the uh, adjustment of the cochlear implant or, and the counseling that has to happen. So if you get a cochlear implant at any age, there is a lot of counseling and adjustments, both technical oh and personal, that need to happen. And so, and there are, we were talking about how few audiologists there are. Well, there's an even fewer subset of audiologists that are trained in cochlear implants. So you, oh, the likelihood of you living far from one is um, pretty high. So if you can connect with them over telemedicine, over a video uh, chat, okay, and then use remote desktop software to um, 
change the settings basically in their cochlear implant, then um, that, that advances eliminates the, the, wow. the distance barrier. And, um, that is awesome. Okay, that makes sense. Now, I was really curious. I wanted to ask you earlier, but I was like, I'll wait till later. That's a good question. <laughs> um, and um, we spoke about how telemedicine can fill a lot of the voids in the current healthcare system. Can you tell us how is public health and telemedicine linked? The goals of public health are the same as the goals of telemedicine. It's just expand access to care and to make services more convenient and affordable and accessible for everyone. We're t completely in line with public health and very at home in the College of Public Health here. <laughs> Increased quality of life. Both exactly. want to do this. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. Do you have a story that you would like to share with us? I don't know, maybe something that like you will never forget or something that's funny or maybe something that shocked you and maybe is not quite as funny? Oh, I was just telling the story yesterday actually to some students that um, they asked the question that are there some people that just don't like telemedicine? They're um, maybe thinking about an older individual who doesn't use the computer and may want the physical presence of a clinician with them in the room mm -hmm. and I think that's a great point that may be a real concern for some individuals. They just, they want to be in the same room and that's completely perfectly fine for them. In my experience, there in the project in Texas, for example, there were some older adults who who reported they didn't have experience with technology. All of these, these cameras around them were very new to them. And then when I showed up on the big screen, um, I was in a different city and talking to them from the other city on the screen, mm -hmm. they at first would, one patient thought I was on the TV. Like, oh, like literally thought you were on TV. <laughs> thought I was on TV. Or would talk to me like through a, um, through the nurse who was the facilitator in the room with them. Got tell it. her to, um, could you tell her this? And um, <laughs> pointing to the screen, exactly, which is you. <laughs> yeah. So it took a little bit of adjustment, but. Um, I think after a couple of minutes they get comfortable and familiar and then they start talking to me as if realizing mm -hmm. that I could talk back. But definitely for a couple of patients, like for the first few minutes, they um, seemed shocked that I could hear them and it was all kind of new. Can you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> Can you, excuse me, I could definitely see that. I could see my grandmother doing that actually. Wow. And, but afterwards they get used to it. I also was reading, well, it was to add on to what you mentioned, I was doing some reading some testimonials and hearing about people that haven't used telemedicine. They said, um, especially for uh, like a, for to see a psychiatrist, you can also, I see that there's uh, initiatives for using telemedicine in that perspective. So if you need to talk to a psychiatrist or your psychiatrist immediately, you know, you can dial them up and talk to them. And at first you don't feel comfortable sharing, you know, difficult times and right. your deepest, darkest, darkest secrets with someone on a screen. Right. But they say that after like one or two sessions that it becomes so natural and the ability to access it has really improved their ability to, um, to not just like access care, but for them to keep going on their daily life, mm -hmm. knowing that that's a resource that exists right. if they need it. Yeah. So yeah, for the, in that field, um, they have, like we were talking about before, it's it's pretty straightforward. You just need FaceTime or a webcam in your home. So the amount of technology is minimal. The You don't need any training. Pretty much anyone um, would know how to use that technology or with a little bit of instruction. Um, but 
the and the amount of patient satisfaction that's seen by increasing that accessibility like having access to your um, psychologist in your home at any um, notice that's that's you're having a breakdown or something I don't know I just thought that was amazing yeah that makes me really happy to hear that and I feel like with a with a generation that's coming up that's born with technology it's going to come so naturally Mm -hmm. yeah there are people in the generations um our generation maybe and generations younger than us that are they're so comfortable with screens and they have friendships with people that they've never met before they're (laughs) online friendships and so it's their new way of accessing there are some generations that all they'll ever know is telemedicine they that will be so comfortable for them that's how they will access their primary care physician Mm -hmm. and they'll they're ordering their prescriptions online everything is done online for those individuals but like I said there's still some people and it doesn't matter how old you are that just won't be comfortable with it and for them they'll be traditional services that's not ever going away so what can public health public administration students and even business students so what what can we do to help uh to help you researchers to help spread the word about hey you know this is kind of a new wave of how we're going to be doing medicine how to make sure that we're doing it correctly to make sure how do we advocate for it or what can we do because I mean you're kind of a hybrid that works in speech and the public health and I and it's awesome and I think we need more hybrids like you Um, but what can we do public administration uh, public health business I think that's a really good question a good point Um, one is like you mentioned bridging departments bridging health science areas and public health being the kind of crux of it the one that connects all of us of course but also getting away from the idea that telemedicine is a new a different area of healthcare. It's just a way of facilitating everyone's specialty. So I'm an audiologist and I deliver audiology services, sometimes face-to-face and sometimes over telemedicine. But it's the same services and I'm the same person delivering the same care and it's the same quality. I'm held to the same standards, but it's just a different way of um, accessing those services. And so I think even though we may all be thinking in that way, if we get that vocabulary down and start to speak that way, it may be easier to expand um, coverage for it to get reimbursed. While it is new in certain ways, it won't appear as this kind of scary new branch of medicine because it's not. It's just a different way, um, different service delivery model. Thank you, Coco. I couldn't have finished any better. So as the last thing I'll say is uh, at the legislature this session, I am tracking Senate Bill 1089, which is telemedicine and insurance and something we are working on is a coverage parity. So pretty much what you said, it's not a different even it's not a different arena. It's literally the same thing. And we're trying to figure out how we can pay for services that would have been provided in person. So and in addition, um, this uh, law would subject um, all doctors and pretty much everything that's in telemedicine to the same laws that everyone else is doing in Arizona. So as you mentioned, that is, I'm so excited to see where our future Thank is moving. You. Thank you. Keep so fighting much. that fight. There you go. Thank you, Coco. <laughs> Thank you for listening. And
this is Krista. Thank you for listening in to Arizona Common Ground. I am here in the third floor of the Senate with uh, Senator Carter in her office, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. Hello, Senator Carter. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Heather Carter, and I am the state senator from Legislative District 15, which is pretty much all of North Phoenix, parts of Scottsdale, and Cave Creek, Arizona. Cool. What influenced you to become a, a, an active legislator, and what got you into politics? Well, I was a middle school teacher and then worked at the university for, at the time when I ran for office, probably just over 10 years preparing teachers and principals to work in our K-12 schools. And I became very aware of the decisions that were being made at the Capitol and how they impacted our school system in Arizona. So I wanted to lend my voice and expertise to the legislative process and hopefully make legislation that works in the classroom. And of course, our work covers a number of policy areas. So once I was elected to the legislature, I focused my work at the Capitol in two key areas, in healthcare and in education. Many times conversations around those two policy areas are related to the budget process for the state of Arizona. So about during the middle of my service over in the Arizona House of Representatives, I asked to be a member of the Appropriations Committee, and I've been serving on the Appropriation Committee now for a number of years as well, and I also serve on the Appropriations Committee in the Senate. Wow, that's fantastic. Thank you, Senator Carter. Yes. So I'm going to jump right into it because uh, I've been lucky enough to work with you and track a bill. It's SB, so Senate Bill 1089, and I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what made you sponsor Bill in Telemedicine? So I served as the House Health Chairwoman for six years and Vice Chair two years prior to that. And when I transitioned to the Senate, I knew there was still work that we needed to do in the area of telemedicine. Arizona was on the forefront of many state legislative efforts around adopting new statutory uh, language around the implementation of telemedicine. So when Arizona started to recognize telemedicine as a way to deliver healthcare services, we did so by specifically identifying specialty areas in healthcare that could use telemedicine services. Now, we were one of the first states to adopt that. As other states started to look at implementing telemedicine in their states, they went ahead and provided telemedicine services for any covered practice or specialty area. So Arizona, while we were one of the first states to adopt telemedicine in our state statutes, we are one of the last states that still had specific specialty areas designated in statute that where you could use telemedicine and be reimbursed. I said it was time for Arizona to update our statutes. We need to do so in two areas. One is around coverage, and it's called coverage parity. That's the bill you see this year. And there's still a conversation we will need to have around payment parity because our healthcare practitioners are not reimbursed at 100% when they do provide their services via telemedicine. But this year, it was such a giant step forward to provide coverage parity. We wanted to focus on that for the private insurance market. Got it. So just to paint a picture, and correct me if I'm wrong. So before we have uh, Senate Bill 1089, we could only cover certain specialties in, right. in telemedicine. I'm exactly. trying to remember a couple examples. Dermatology. We uh, added urology and pain management. A, a session or two ago and so 
the specialty areas were obviously important when we first passed the legislation, and they continue to be important, but an example of an area that wasn't covered would be primary medicine. Think about it. You can now, because of this legislation, be a primary care practitioner seeing somebody who has private insurance through their employer, for example. They would not be reimbursed prior to this bill being passed for providing services primary care services via telemedicine, and now with this bill, they can be reimbursed. So primary care is, a, is a, a perfect example to demonstrate the importance of providing medical services using telemedicine. You already have an established relationship with your practitioner, and perhaps you have to travel long distances to see your doctor. Maybe you have to drive 50, 60, sometimes even over 100 miles. We heard testimony to this situation, and so now, a doctor can check in on their patient using telemedicine and be reimbursed by their private insurance. Thank you for painting that picture. Thank you. And um, so can you tell us about, a little bit about the history of what was the work that was done before what we're seeing right now at the legislature? So anytime you introduce a bill, there's a lot of homework and legwork that goes into preparing that legislation for prime time. And by prime time, I mean introducing it during a legislative session. In January. So we, we introduce a bill, we actually can introduce a bill starting in December when it receives a number, but the bill isn't recognized by the body until we come into, until we open up our legislative session, which is the beginning of January. But you can introduce a bill, there's a particular date and statute, I don't remember the exact date, but it's following the general election and then so many days before the session. So you can start introducing bills in about the early part of December. They'll receive a number, they'll get put on, posted online, but they won't get recognized by the legislative body until the session opens. So once session opens, then the leadership in both the House and the Senate, depending on where the bill is introduced, first reads it, second reads it, assigns it to a committee, and then the chairman decides whether they're going to hear it. But the work around telemedicine specifically was a culmination of many stakeholder meetings. So in either November or December, it was like late November, beginning of December, I brought together constituents from across the state of Arizona that represented advocacy organizations, professional associations, practitioners, healthcare organizations, the insurance um, industry, and other lawmakers that were interested in this. And I brought them to a room at the Capitol and I said, this is what I'm thinking about doing. What are the positives? What are the negatives? What should we... Um, look at in terms of introducing the statutory language should we have it you know be a simple bill where we're just striking the particular subspecialties that are identified in statutes should we try to go a little further so it took one two three and four edits of the bill before i even introduced the bill oh i bet oh how hard is it to get all those people in a room especially when i mean i'm not saying it you know we're all gonna sing kumbaya right. and hug each other but how What's it like to try to get everyone in a room and then actually negotiate and hatch out new plans? What's well, that like? Well, the, the scheduling of the meeting is challenging in and of itself, <laughs> just getting everybody to, to clear their schedules. That, that's challenge number one. But now once you have everybody in the room, this has been an issue we've been talking about since I was first elected. So for the last eight years, we have had a number of conversations. So I knew I was going into that meeting with the insurance companies who were opposed to expanding the services and the conversation was about the fact they wanted to be to do it of their own accord and they would see this as an unfunded mandate they would see it as a mandate with a private 
um, with a private contract component so that the insurance company then has a private contract with the provider and now we're saying you must provide these services even though it's their contract between the insurance company and the provider. Oh. So there was a lot of opposition. In the past, there was tremendous opposition just adding new specialty areas. And many times even the Chamber of Commerce would come out opposed to the bill because they were representing their membership and their membership, a large, a large number of the insurance companies are a member of the Chamber of Commerce, so on behalf of their members, the Chamber of Commerce would oppose it. So it was important to work out as much consensus language as we could prior to session so that once the bill started in session, we're not having um, arguments over pieces of the, of the bill that we could potentially work out before we go into session. And so all we were doing in session then is providing public testimony and getting input to see if we needed to amend the bill. So the bill, the first draft of the bill was vehemently opposed by the, the insurance industry because they felt that the language went too far. So the advocates said, fine, we'll kind of scale the language back. And then that's the bill that you saw that moved forward, which basically just struck out of statute, existing statute, the specialty areas without making new statutory definitions of what telemedicine is and what it's not. So that was a negotiated um, compromise to reach a bill that had consensus support from the advocates and no opposition from the people who have traditionally opposed any expansion of telemedicine. But just to add to that, because that is, I'm thinking, first of all, you have to get all these stakeholder groups in a room. You have to talk about the issue, find a solution. And this all has to happen before session begins. Cause, because as you mentioned, you don't want to go in and, and not have, and have people disagreeing because then your bill's going to die immediately. So I noticed something that, was done very well for this bill is um, so for every whenever a bill is on an active agenda you can go in on azledge.gov and you can see who is signed in in support or in opposition of the bill and I was so impressed when I was looking it up to see all the different hospitals and insurance companies and all the stakeholders saying you know we're for and if they're not for at least they were neutral right. so I just want to have our listeners understand the amount of work that goes behind something like that. And in order to show a committee wherever the bill might travel to, to show that all this work and consensus has been worked out is by sometimes just looking up who signed in for and against the bill. So right. I would like to, would love to applaud you because that was very, very smart and also a very good way to show all the efforts. And I think it's important also to know that the work that we did prior to session was important so that you, you can kick off an idea during the legislative session with sort of all your ducks in a row. You are not trying to fix problems that could have been fixed prior to session. However, not every bill is that the case. Sometimes uh, legislation is introduced without a stakeholder process, and they use the strategic introduction of legislation to get people to come to the table to start talking. So in the case that you saw this year with the telemedicine bill, we've spent eight years talking about this issue, so we knew who the players were. They knew that I was very passionate about this issue and that I was going to introduce a piece of legislation to address the, the comprehensive implementation of telemedicine. So there was the work that had been done prior to the session that formed the foundation that enabled us to bring a bill forth during the session that had 
that type of an organization. And then I wasn't the one going around asking people to sign in. The advocates do a lot of self-organizing, and I think that's a critical piece to it because you are, I'm the lawmaker, so I introduce the bill, I get the language together, I put it through the process here in the legislature, but it really does take a team effort. Yes, my name is on the bill, so I have to be able to articulate the, the um, important things we're trying to do with the legislation. I have to be able to answer questions. I have to be able to respond when somebody is opposed to the bill. But if, you, if it's a solo effort, it's very, very hard, if not near impossible, to get something over the finish line. It really does take a coordinated effort amongst a number of stakeholders to get a bill all the way through the process and signed by the governor. I'm really glad you brought a timeline and stakeholder engagement, so we're going to move to that. So let's say, um, moving away from telemedicine, but I, something I've enjoyed you saying, and I'm going to repeat it, and these are your words. So you said, a lot of bills stem from an idea or a story. Right. So a constituent comes in and they're concerned and they share something, or, um, you know, you. so I, I really like that concept. So let's say someone has, you know, an idea or something they would like to share, how would they go about finding a legislator, or what are the steps? Well, the state legislature is very accessible. Many times when you think about reaching to your federal delegation, your congressman or your senator, they have um, you know, offices both in their district and in D.C., there's lots of staff. It can be more challenging to contact your federal delegation. But when it comes to your state lawmakers, we are extremely accessible. We typically, if you're a chairman of the committee, you have an administrative assistant, and that's it. There, is, there are six, seven people that support the entire caucus, and then there's a number of people that support the entire legislative body and research, but we are very accessible. My recommendation is to reach out to your specific designated lawmaker that represents the area in which you live. So if you live in North Phoenix, you know, reach out to the lawmaker that represents the geographical area in which you live. The other way you can also reach out to a lawmaker is whoever the committee chairperson or vice chair is of the topic that you're interested in talking about. So if you have a health issue, go to the Health and Human Services Committee. If you have an education issue, go to the education chair or I'm the higher education chairman. If you have a public safety issue, go to the public safety committee. So I'd really start with one of two individuals, either your own individual lawmaker, you have two representatives and one senator, or to the chair or chairman, or maybe any of the committee members as well. Because typically what happens is once session gets going, it, members are assigned to two or three topic committees. So for example, I serve as the chairwoman of higher education workforce development, I'm vice chair of health and human services, and I serve on appropriations. So if you had any issues that were in those three areas, I'm on this committee, it's more, um, it's more of a streamlined process for me to introduce legislation that's in that committee. It's more of a challenge when I introduce legislation that isn't in a committee in which I serve, because I may have to leave my committee to go to a transportation committee. You know, I ran a bill this year for veterans because they wanted to receive their, their seal of the branch in which they served on the veteran license plate. I had to leave the health committee to go testify in transportation. So it's a really good idea to start with the people who are on your committee that is affiliated with a topic you're interested in. And definitely reach out to your own lawmakers because they represent you. And share your story and explain to them why uh, what it is that you're trying to advance is important to them and the other people in which they represent. And when would be a good time for people to do that? 
obviously when we're in session, we get a lot of calls, a lot of emails, there's a lot of activity going on at the Capitol, there's advocacy days at the Capitol, that's a great way to come down and say hi, but if you really want to take a deep dive into an issue, you should try to reach your lawmakers when we're out of session. So we're in session the first, excuse me, the second Monday in January through about the end of April this year, we might go a little longer, but until right into the, into the summer months. I would recommend spending the summer months and into the fall reaching out to your lawmakers to get to know them and you have a little bit more time on your schedule to talk and take a deeper dive into issues. Perfect. Do you hear that everyone? Summer is the time. Summer and fall. Summer and fall and luckily in Phoenix, I, I can hear it now, they have fantastic air conditioning so right. you won't have to melt. Probably fall better than summer because uh, summer can get really busy with, with individual schedule but I see um, activity picking up at the Capitol uh, right after Labor Day. Okay, thank you so That's fantastic. Yes. Thank you. Um, and so how can we be prepared when we meet with the legislator? Or do you have any best practices that we should be ready for? So let's say we identified who we want to talk to, we spoke with the, their administrative assistant and they have you know locked in a time where we can meet with them. What do we do to maximize that opportunity? Well, what's interesting is when I was first elected, I, were, I scheduled one hour meetings because I was a teacher and the classes lasted about 55 minutes. So I took an hour, I know. As you know, based upon experience down here at the Capitol, that is a sheer luxury yes. and does not happen. So you, if you are scheduled for a time to meet with a lawmaker, make sure you're on time, but do not be surprised if they are not. Um, I think people sometimes get a little anxious if their lawmaker is running late or maybe needs to reschedule, I wouldn't take it personal. Our, our schedules are so unpredictable. And the further we go into the session, the more unpredictable they become. In the fall or summer when we're not in session, our schedules are a little bit more predictable. When you schedule an appointment at one, you can pretty, pretty much expect to, to meet with that lawmaker right around one o'clock. But during session, that's not the case. I can also attest as I've been lucky enough to shadow you and yes. been Cons, I just have no idea. Senator Carter, even people are like, you know, just a minute, just a minute. It's incredible to see you work with people, but definitely understand. So if they have to reschedule, if something comes up, it's not personal. take it personally. Definitely don't. Because right. you usually feel bad if something comes right. up and you're like, oh no, I had this meeting. What right. did I do? But you know what? We keep going. So just, if you do have to reschedule, be persistent. Be persistent. So let's say we get our meeting, we're actually walking in. What do right. we do with those maybe 20 to 30 minutes, even though we scheduled an hour? I know, even though we <laughs> scheduled an hour. So I, here's what's interesting. You've heard people talk about an elevator speech. You need to have everything prepared from an elevator speech to 20 minutes of information and questions and answers because you don't know where the conversation is going to go with the lawmaker. So when you come in, you need to be ready and on point and have your, your talking points prepared and know exactly what the takeaway is that you want to leave behind with the lawmaker. So think of it as, what would you post on Twitter? If, make it 180 characters. Then say, okay, here's my one line Twitter post. What, 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 what would I post on Facebook? I have a few more lines but it still needs to be short. And then think about writing, you know, a short, what would be equivalent of a short essay. Because when you go to meet the lawmaker, you wanna be friendly, warm, welcoming, introduce yourself, explain who you're representing. Are you representing yourself? Are you representing an organization? Are you um, lobbying on behalf of an individual or another organization or a business? Make sure you 
explain who you are representing and where you are coming from in bringing this idea forward. Then dive right into your issue. I, you got to make that first statement out of your out of your mouth be impactful. Here's what I'm here to talk to you about. Yeah, give that a, punch. A, B, and C. Yeah. And then you can take a deep dive. And I would really pause to ask the lawmaker, do you have any initial feedback? Do you have anything? Do you have any experience in this area? Is, have you ever heard of this? Try to make it a two-way dialogue. You've been witness to individuals who have come in to lobby me. If we've scheduled a 15-minute, you don't want to spend the entire 15 minutes talking mm -hmm. because I guarantee the lawmaker after about a minute or two will start, their minds will start to wander and say, oh, I've got this meeting, I've got to worry about this bill, I've got to think about this amendment, what's going to happen? You want to make sure that you are including their perspective into the conversation, and the only way you can do that is by asking them questions. So you want to be engaging. You want to ask the questions, thoughts, feelings, what, what's your experience with this? That is just really smart. So do you recommend um, not only, so again, be prepared with an elevator speech, um, bring in all your different summaries. Should we bring in like a fact sheet? Should, br should we bring something we can leave with you? Or And also, I feel, I may, this might just be me, but if I am coming and I am voicing an issue or a concern, bring a solution. You right. Know? So can you talk to that? Well, more? so three things then. There we go. You, okay. You kind of asked three things in that question. So, so, so first, do you leave a fact sheet behind? You're welcome to leave a fact sheet behind. People leave lots of fact sheets behind. <laughs> Sometimes there are lawmakers that really utilize the fact sheets and they file them away and they're they are well organized using paper. Some lawmakers, myself included, prefer an electronic version. So I, if you can send me a PDF, if you can send me an email, I can make files or my administrative assistant can file and organize my email folders based upon bills. If you're referencing a bill, make sure you have the bill on the fact sheet so it's not just a generic fact sheet. Make sure that you're saying it's about this bill and here's why it's important. If you have statistics in there, make sure you have small <laughs> citations so we know where you, you, where you, um, what you are citing as your source for the statistic, but one page, visual aid, more um, graphics than narrative because you want it to stand out amongst everything else we read. Mm -hmm. You can reference something that is a little bit more narrative-based. So if you had a, a white paper or information brochure or something, you can reference that. But lawmakers need something quick as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not saying you have to have both, but it helps if you, if you have some sort of a, a lead behind that they can reference. And I'll tell you another thing that's a little secret, and we haven't really talked about this. Mm -hmm. It's important, obviously, for you to leave the information behind to the lawmaker. It's probably more important for you to leave the information behind to my administrative assistant and the staff at the Capitol. Because the staff, if I have a question and it's 7 o'clock at night, we're voting on a bill, or 3 o'clock in the morning, we're, we're voting on a bill, and this, I have a question and I go ask staff about it, they need to be able to get an answer. And they're not going to be able to get all of you at 3 o'clock in the morning. Maybe they will, but probably not. Mm -hmm. And if that answer is in what you left behind, they need it just as much as the lawmaker needs it. Because another member may ask them a question about it. So so don't don't forget about staff and don't forget about leaving behind a couple to say you can give this to your, your staff that works in the health industry or, or whatever, whichever topic area you're working on. I think that's critically important. So that was the leave behind. Then you asked two other quick questions. With oh, that. I think, uh, so wait, really quick on the staff. Who do we know? 
or let's say I've never, it's one of my first times going to the Capitol, who do I know as staff, or like, do I drop it off at the front desk, or do I, how do I? The good thing is, is you can walk right in the front Capitol, you can go to the, the security um, individuals that are at the front desk at, all, at every single floor, have them contact the, every member has an administrative assistant, contact the administrative assistant, try to get the meeting with a lawmaker, or ask for a meeting with the staff member that deals with this topic area. Oh, and your administrative assistants will be sort of the gatekeeper and can kind of help educate uh, constituents to navigate that process as well. Okay, thank you. And I so, think the other question I was asking is, should we bring solutions to the table? Yeah, so you that's a great example. If you're, if you're bringing a problem and you have a solution, definitely bring the solution. The other piece to it is also, it requires money. How do you propose we pay for it? So I serve on appropriations. There are incredible programs that I think have tremendous value, particularly, let's say, in the public health space, for example. Many of them require additional state dollars. So if you have a program that requires dollars, you either have to show me as a lawmaker how this will save the state money to then reinvest in other state priority areas, or where do you think the money will come from to pay for that program? So it's not only the solution, but how will you pay for it? That's really smart. That's really good feedback. And um, so we spoke about finding your legislator, how to approach them, and the time frame, and then how to be prepared for a when you do meet with your legislator. Um, going back into telemedicine, um, did you have, uh, other than the stakeholders that took the eight years, what was it like once you already started the process? Did you have any new people try to jump on and say, hey, here? this is something else that you might consider and how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's what's really interesting is when you move a bill through the process, if an individual or an organization or a business maybe weren't at the stakeholder table and they are tracking legislation related to a particular issue, a bill like this would pop up on the radar and they can get involved. I invite any stakeholders to at least reach out to me. The meetings were, we didn't have any additional meetings during session, but you can provide your input, support, opposition, questions, concerns. You can bring them to the lawmaker. Um, when we had our stakeholder meeting in November, there were new people at the table that hadn't been at the table. We had a new nonprofit organization that was involved with advocacy, and they came to the table, invited them right to the table, and they, they participated just like everybody else. And uh, just as a final closing questions, um, what, is, uh, what, what do you envision for telemedicine in Arizona? I think telemedicine in Arizona is a, a, an important next step in improving the health and health care for the citizens of Arizona. And the reason why is Arizona is a very rural state, and we also are experiencing a physician and nursing shortage and behavioral health. So across all the healthcare sector, we have a shortage and we're very rural. So where telemedicine can solve a problem is really in twofold. It will allow individuals who live a long distance away from their practitioner to be able to have more timely and hopefully important health care appointments that will not be confined to just when they can get in the car and drive 100 miles to go see their, their primary practitioner or whatever specialist they may need to see. So we're really bringing the practitioner to the individual. But it's not just to their house. Sometimes, and what was testified in committee, is that their local critical care access hospital may not have a specialty area um, that you need if you present there in an emergency situation or even with a, with a chronic condition. 
through telemedicine from one hospital to another hospital, now you're opening up the sphere of, of practitioners who can help serve the citizens of an area that maybe you know two, three, four, five hundred miles away from where the patient and the and the doctor is. So telemedicine really breaks down the geographical barriers that exist between the patient and the practitioner. But also, I think it's critical to realize that there are there. So you've got your geographical limits, but there's also a shortage of specialty practitioners in Arizona. Um, I was at a conference with you at the University of Arizona in, in Tucson at one of the, grad, well, I think it was the Admitted Students Day, mm -hmm. and one of the professors said there's only eight or nine developmental pediatricians, eight or nine, in, in the, the whole state. state. Yes. So even if you had one right in your area, you may not be able to get in to see that person. Telemedicine will hopefully expand the reach of those individuals across the state of Arizona. And I think that's critically important. Where the concern is related to telemedicine is that there are, there are places in Arizona that don't have electricity, running water, and even though we are providing the services on private insurance to be able to be delivered via telemedicine, if you don't have the technology capabilities, it doesn't help. But if you can get to a critical care access hospital, that hospital can help connect you to the practitioners. So that's still important. And I think it's important to keep an eye on the fact that we're doing things over on the technology sector, and really it's public safety and infrastructure trying to increase the broadband uh, capabilities in the state of Arizona. That's a whole other initiative outside of healthcare, but once those dollars are put in place and the infrastructure is built, telemedicine can then just utilize that infrastructure that is built. So it's coming. Probably we would need it faster than what it is now, but it is definitely something we're all talking about. And it's really for public safety. It's about education. It's about healthcare. Um, and I just don't want to lose sight of the fact we definitely still need to work on infrastructure to make sure that individuals have access to care via telemedicine as well. Thank you for your time, Senator Carter. Yes. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Just in time for a quick recap of today's episode, Dr. Laura Coco reminds us about the dire need for pediatric audiologists in Arizona and audiologists in general. Um, she shares personal examples of how academic research was used to create programs and pilot studies to address the medical gap of those living in rural areas or in medically underserved areas. Senator Carter walked us through the legislative history of telemedicine and how we arrived to the current bill, SB 1089. She gave us a ton of tips. So to meet with your legislator in the summer or fall time to discuss your topic, come prepared with an elevator speech and with questions. When speaking with your representative, make it a two-way conversation. Ask them if they've had experience in this topic or if they have any other recommendations. When bringing up an issue, do your best to also bring solutions. If you or your stakeholder team have information or fact sheets, make sure to give them to staff. And by staff, they mean not just the people up front, but also administrative assistants, and you could always give your information to other people that work, such as policy analysts, who we will speak to in later episodes. And a very good way to show that groundwork has been laid out before the bill is introduced is by using the request to speak system. So again, have all stakeholder groups, professional organizations, healthcare organizations, insurance companies, all those that are involved with your bill, have them sign in in favor of the bill on the RTS system. This way, when the bill is introduced and the legislators are looking who signed in for or against the bill, you can show that common ground was reached.